Welcome to the Church Interpreting Podcast. I'm Jonathan Downey. And I'm Lauren Albisu. And on the show today, we'll have more from our interview with theologian Harvey Kiwani. Lauren will talk about the Holy Spirit working through her as she's interpreting. We'll have a four-minute interview with Yosechi. And we'll end on a quick tip. But first, here's our interview with Harvey Kuyani. You have this book, Multicultural Kingdom, which really gives us, especially in the UK context, the history and the background to how we got where we are and to, to the models of multicultural church that we see in the Bible. What does it look like kind of concretely for a church to be multicultural today? What does that look like? What does that feel like? For, for, for most people in, in urban Britain, they already live in multicultural societies. If you are in NSC day in the UK, you will have in, in your communities, in your societies, people from different cultures, different parts of the world. So um, one of the key ingredients is already made there. You are already living in a, in a, in a, in a, in a multicultural society. What we need to process then is how does we make our churches, our, uh, the way we talk about church, the way we think about church, our ecclesiology, to create space for people of different cultures and different languages, different skin colors mm. to worship together. And, and that's, that's where I think um, we need to wrestle uh, together to, to find new ways of making this happen. What we do at the moment is, um, is, is really um, shaped by the fact that and, and we know this from the from from the church growth movement of the 60s 70s in america that it's easier to grow churches if they are made up of one of of a people of of one rest or one 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 social status or something like that that people belong in churches um in 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 homogeneous communities but of what we are arguing for and we're trying to we're trying to encourage churches to do is to move away from from the fact that it's it's easier to grow our churches if if we are segregated to actually begin to do the hard work of saying actually god has called us not to be a segregated community he has called us to be together with others around the world and 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 key to the argument as as i make in 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 multicultural kingdom is the fact that, um, and I, I base this on Ephesians 4.16, uh, that the body uh, can only function well if there's a mutual exchange between its members. Mm-hmm. Right? That, um, yeah, Ephesians 4.16 says that the body is knit together or glued together by that which every joint supplies. Mm-hmm. So God has given parts of the body different gifts. Not one part of the body is self-sufficient. Mm. No one part of the body has everything it needs. God has intentionally desired it, designed it this way, that um, we all need to 
to, to receive from others in order to be, but also others need to receive from us. So there has to be a, an exchange, right? Um, we can think about this on a, on a global scale and think about how, say, the African church can, can bring something into Europe, right? Uh, but also how the, the European church can bring something into Africa. But we, we, we can also think about it in a, in a, in a very small scale in, in our communities, in, in, in our cities, that the gifts of the African church are already present there. The gifts of the Latin American church, the Asian church are already present there. How do we make that exchange happen? How, how do we create spaces where that exchange can actually uh, take place? Are you viewing multicultural church then as groups of individual churches that are themselves multicultural or in terms of having an exchange between different sort of churches in the same city? Should individual churches be multicultural as well? I mean, the presence that there are different congregations um, from different cultures is, is a good starting point. Mm-hmm. My hope is that then these congregations or new congregations will emerge that will actually have members from different parts of the world mm-hmm. worshiping together. Mm-hmm. Um, now, it's it's a lot easier to 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 stay in our small bubbles and small small circles, lead our own small congregations. The power structures make it easier that way. The the fact that you don't need to go negotiate cross-cultural communications makes things easy. But I, I believe that the gospel calls us to actually negotiate those things mm-hmm. and negotiate those power structures in a way that then um, essentially dissenters all of us so that Christ can be at the center and that Christ can be our only host and all of us are guests at Christ's table. But, but also then that means that the, our power structures begin to reflect our communities. That um, if, we are, if we are doing a multicultural congregation in, in Liverpool and we're intentional about um, who is seen, who is leading the church, we will, we will then try and, and make sure that the leadership is reflective of the population in Liverpool. So we include, we include Afro-Caribbeans, we include, we include the Nigerians, we include, we include the Ghanaians, and we include, we include the white British people and, and everybody. So that the leadership itself is also representative of, of the community that, that God has called us to build. Turning to the real practical aspects of this, how can a church get from being, you know, a white church or a Ghanaian church to being a truly multicultural church? Are there concrete steps that they need to be taking? The steps depend really on the context in which they are and and their commitment to to, mm-hmm. to doing this. As I said, um, once you get on this journey, you you will have to deal with how you do power in, in the congregation, mm-hmm. right? Um, I, I do believe that uh, being a multicultural church means that you have put Christ at the center mm-hmm. and, and, and everybody else is a guest, right? So that um, one of the key things that, that I, I ask congregations to think about is who is, who, who is holding the microphone on, on any given Sunday? Is there, is there are the people who are standing up on the podium uh, representative of 
the society around the con- not just the congregation itself, but the society around it. Can 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 black kids come into the church and see themselves represented? Um, on people who are in this in in the choir, uh, people who are preaching, people who are doing announcements, are the people who are holding the microphone, who are leading in the congregations, really representative of the, the society around the church. That's that's step one. Once you once you negotiate that step, once you make a commitment that yes, it will cost us. We will probably our church will will not grow as fast as we want it to because we have to deal with the cross-cultural issues around it. Um, And and while we are are saying that actually probably it slows down church growth, I should add that while it slows down church growth, it is in some ways um, an insurance for the congregation to stay longer. Uh, I I do argue, I think there's a a statement that I make in my multicultural kingdom. Uh, that says homogeneity is slow death. That that to, to be a homogeneous community uh, means that you you as 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 the circumstances around the community change, as people move away, as as things happen, you you will you will lose your your place in society. You will begin to lose people. You and 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 the best way to counter that is actually to embrace diversity and to embrace to embrace uh, the people. Uh, that God has put around you. It doesn't matter how they look. It doesn't matter where they come from. And that's, that's how the churches can, can continue growing. But, but the, exchange, the, the, the exchange between uh, let's grow fast um, and probably grow slowly, but we may stay longer, that, that is always difficult for congregations to, to negotiate. Thank you, Harvey. The third and final part of that interview will appear in the August episode of the Church Interpreting Podcast. And now here's Lauren talking about the Holy Spirit moving through her as she interprets. Whenever I'm done with my interpreting, I always like to go and look for the people who received the interpretation just to see if they could hear everything okay and to make that connection with them, right? And I think the number one thing they always tell me especially if it's the first time listening to an interpreted service is I don't know how you do it I could never they speak too quickly or I would get lost or I don't know how you do it that you have such a great talent and my response to those comments or those questions it's always the same thing it's oh, the Holy Spirit helps me that's what he's there for People always look at me like they cannot completely understand what I mean. Like I'm being possessed and have no real clue what I did. And sometimes they invalidate my skills. Sometimes they're like, so does that mean you do nothing and the Holy Spirit does it all? And that's not what I mean, right? Because I can interpret without the Holy Spirit. The problem is I don't want to operate in my talent I want to operate in a gift, and interpreting is a gift of the Spirit. We see it in 1 Corinthians 12.10. It talks about how in, when it's listing out the gifts of the Spirit, it says, still another person is given the ability to speak in unknown languages, while another is given the ability to interpret what is being said. So I prayed 
to activate that gift of interpreting tongues in my life so that I could properly work in the spirit to interpret a sermon that a pastor is giving to a congregation or members of a congregation that do not understand him because it's no good to speak to people that don't understand you, right? And I feel like maybe this questioning of how is it that the Holy Spirit works through you may be difficult to understand because some people tend to think the Holy Spirit is for the select few or they put limitations as to what the Holy Spirit can do. It can do it for the pastor, but he cannot do it for me. So how is this random girl with no pastoral calling saying the Holy Spirit is helping her in her interpreting? But the Holy Spirit was left as an aid to all of us. Once you're born again Christian, you have that Holy Spirit as your aid. And if we look at your outer Bibles, I don't know what it says in your Bible, but in 2 Corinthians 3, 5, it tells me that it is not that we are competent in ourselves to claim anything is coming from ourselves, but our adequacy is from God. Now, if my adequacy comes from God, that means that he can help me with every single thing that I do. So I put my interpretation in his hands and I let him work through me, right? Because I could interpret without the Holy Spirit, but I don't want to forego that lightness, that airiness I feel after I'm done interpreting, the fact that it doesn't feel heavy, that I don't feel tired, I could deliver a message to perfection. I could say every single word, get every single joke, have everything down, no problems. But if the Holy Spirit's not present, I don't want to do it because there's no real understanding. There's no transformation. There's no real message there. So I don't want to do it. Jonathan mentioned that the way that we measure our interpreting and its effectiveness is through it having a real understanding and change. And without the Holy Spirit, there can never be real understanding and there can never be real change. So if I am to take the responsibility for those people that are already listening to me and depending on my words to receive from this Spirit, I need to have the Holy Spirit there with me because if not, I am failing at delivering his word. If I do not have the Holy Spirit in my interpretation, I am a roadblock to the kingdom of God and I am helping nobody. And my purpose is to build the kingdom, not tear it down. So who better to deliver God's word than God himself? That's why I have to be sensitive to the Spirit when I'm interpreting I have to make sure that he's the one that's giving me the words when I am failing to reach at them because I want to build that kingdom and I want that interpretation to deliver that understanding and change. Thank you, Lauren. And now here's our four-minute interview with Yost Sechi. Yost is a professional translator and language consultant who lives at the Oregon coast. Originally from Hamburg, Germany, he earned a PhD for a dissertation on the history of Chinese Bible translation at the University of Hamburg in 1996. Since 2016, he's been contracting with the United Bible Societies to help create and maintain the Translation Insights and Perspectives Tips tool at tips.translation.bible. His latest book is Encountering Barebones Christianity. You can find him at, on Twitter at JeromeBot and by email at yost at internationalwriters.com. 
You're on the Translation Insights and Perspectives website. Could you explain what that is and how it came about? Yes, thanks for asking. So the Translation Insights and Perspectives tool is actually owned by United Bible Societies, for whom I curate the site. And I'm doing this together with a um, committee of um, five or six very experienced Bible translation consultants. And the idea of the tool is this. The Bible has been translated into three and a half thousand languages thereabouts at least parts of the Bible. We know as translators and linguists that each language is unique. So each language has specific things that no other language has in just that way. We also know that texts are always changed in the process of translation. So each translation has a unique expression to a text. Now, if we're talking about the biblical text, that's especially interesting because you have at least three and a half thousand different views on the biblical texts that really are not available to you anymore once it's being translated. It's only available for the group that's been translated for, which of course was the original idea of the translation. But our idea is, wouldn't it be exciting to uncover those many different translations and make them available to us to give us unique and insightful views on the Bible that we couldn't have otherwise. And that's really what the tool is. It's a very, very large database that anyone can access to help in their personal Bible studies or even for experts who are working with Bible translations today. You also run the Translation Toolbox newsletter. When did your interest in translation technology start? And which aspects of it interest you most now? Yes, the the Toolbox Journal is a technical newsletter for translators that I'm sending out once a month, and I started that about 20 years ago. And I started that as a time when translators really were not particularly interested in technology. In fact, many translators really did not want to use technology. So I, um, myself actually being untechnical, started to write about my own experiences um, of accepting technology as a productivity tool that made me a better translator. And that's really what the newsletter is about and to, to the present day. I also have two um, column writers. One um, is Josh Goldsmith, who writes about interpreting technology, and one is Dorothy Reset, who writes about um, productivity and translation. As far as what I think about the most important aspect of translation technology for most translators, I would say it is, of course, machine translation even though it's not the only thing that's interesting and challenging for us. But we, my approach to machine translation in my newsletter and elsewhere is that I think it's important that we continue to find creative ways of using machine translation. We, I think, sometimes are stuck in a rut when it comes to using machine translation only in one way, you know, post-editing and all that. But there is many other um, smart and productive ways of using it. And I think we just have to continue to look for good ways of doing that. How does your Christian faith relate to your everyday work? Well, I think like for any Christian, it's impossible to completely separate faith and um, work. We are Christians to our core, that's who we are, and we cannot leave our Christianity behind when we sit down at our desk. Of course, as freelancers, we have more freedom than others who might be working for an organization that that can give them more stringent guidelines on what to communicate about faith or opinion. But we still have to be judicious, I think. We don't want to frustrate 
either clients or colleagues um, on social media or wherever. But I don't think that we should be shy about talking about our faith. Um, I, like many of us, have a fairly large social media presence and I um, don't talk about my faith all the time, but I certainly don't hide it. Um, of course, if you talk about your faith, you want to back that up with actions that don't contradict your words. Clearly something that you would do anyway. And clearly, unfortunately, also something that you will sometimes fail in, as I have failed many times, I'm sure. On social media, it is also important not just what you say, but how you say it. Um, and I'm trying to do the right thing there. And again, often fail, I'm sure. How important is it that Christian translators and interpreters have a group of like-minded people that they can have fellowship with? Thank you for asking that. That's a really important question to me. Um, a, because there is actually an interconfessional fellowship that meets once a month um, that I'm part of and that we would like to invite anyone who also wants to be part of that um, to join us. Uh, it's a place where we talk, where we pray and where we study the Bible and just have fellowship. And it, I think it's also especially important for um, our world of freelance translators because we are isolated and I think it is important to recognize there is of course a good number of Christians among us and why would we not meet and have fellowship especially because Christianity and translation are so closely intertwined um, as far as the history of both and um, also as far as um, today's ideas of translation, many of which do actually come from, um, from Christian sources. Not everything, of course, but much of it does. And so, so I, I'm, I'm blessed by my fellowship that I um, am part of, and I would really encourage you to become part of it also if you choose to do so. Thank you for listening to the Church Interpreting Podcast. Before we go, I wanted to just give you one quick tip. Lots of people talk about the importance of briefing interpreters, giving them your sermon notes, the order of service, telling them if anything special is coming up, if the sermon is part of a series, the scriptures and illustrations you use, and so on. And that's great. But what about debriefing interpreters? Perhaps a day or two after the sermon has been preached after the service, it's good practice to talk to the interpreters to ask them what went well, what didn't go so well, what was easy to interpret, what was difficult to interpret, and getting their view of how partnership can best be produced within the church to produce a better result for everyone. Until next time, thank you for listening.